This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is Secrets of the Most Productive People, a productivity podcast where we work smarter instead of harder and dissect exactly how to get it all done. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Today's episode is the last in our Reinventing Education mini-series. We are going to take a look at how school nurses are preparing and dealing with school reopenings, as well as what epidemiologists are thinking about how we emerge from this crisis. In previous episodes in this series, we have talked to both parents and teachers to hear firsthand how they're dealing with the challenges of caring for and educating kids and the impact it's had on their work. We've also explored the public policy and private sector solutions to this far-reaching problem. If you haven't already, I really encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes. They really help set up the enormity of what we're dealing with and offer some solutions on how we can emerge from this in a much better place than where we started. Joining me to discuss her reporting is staff writer and co-host of the Fast Company podcast, Fast Break, Ruth Reader. Ruth, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. So far in this series, we focus mostly on families and teachers, all of whom are on the front lines, so to speak, of this school reopening dilemma that we, we're finding ourselves in. But there's another group of education professionals that we haven't mentioned yet, but they're playing such a crucial role in schools attempting to restart for in-person learning. And those people are school nurses. In your reporting, you talked to a nurse working at an elementary school in Rhode Island. Is that right? That's right. I talked to Amy Dark, who works in Gloucester, Rhode Island, and is also Rhode Island's director for the National Association for School Nurses. Amy fortunately works in a state that she says really prioritizes school nurses, but that's definitely not the case everywhere. Oh, it's certainly not. If you go to Montana, I think that the ratio is 10,000 students to one school nurse. Oh, wow. Yeah, as you go out west, uh, there's tremendous disparity nationwide um, in having a full-time seated school nurse in every school. This is particularly troubling since the health needs of students is only increasing. The classic idea of a school nurse that exists in probably all of our memories just doesn't exist anymore. And gone are the days of it really being that person that you go to if you are trying to get out of math class with an ill stomach or you might have gotten a scrape or bump on the playground. We are now really on the front lines of acute care. We have children who are, you know, um, very fragile uh, diabetics. We have students who have frequent seizures at school. We have mm-hmm. students coming to school on ventilators. We have students requiring uh, supplemental nutrition, uh, being, you know, tube feedings throughout the day. And this is in addition to our our already very busy caseload. Mm-hmm. And add on COVID-19 to yeah. that. <laughs> It really sounds like it's another existing problem, kind of like some of the other opportunity gaps and inequalities that we, we've looked at. This crisis is really throwing into a, the spotlight the, this disparity in school nurses and, and funding of school nurses and existence of school nurses in so many places. And I know that, you know, Rhode Island, like many places, went entirely virtual this past spring. But for context, how was Amy's district and the state as a whole kind of approached this school year? 
So in Rhode Island, the Department of Education asked every public school district to submit plans for four different scenarios in July. And that was for full in-person, partial in-person, limited in-person, and fully virtual, which, you know, many states did this as well. And there are 30 different districts in Rhode Island. So as you can imagine, there are a lot of different plans. At the end of August, however, Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo announced that all but two school districts were going to go back to fully reopen for in-person classes. And this was contingent on those districts having less than 100 cases per 100,000 residents on a weekly basis in order to bring students back into schools. Raimondo would like all schools to meet this criterion. Basically, she wants all schools to go back to full in-person learning by mid-October. And that's the plan in general. But obviously, if those districts don't meet that threshold, then it's a no-go. Yeah, right. So, So going back to Amy, what happened to her role after the schools went remote? Well, you would imagine, you know, if there's no kids in school, then a school nurse has a lot less to do. But that turned out not to be the case. I can say that I worked more hours in a day and a week since uh, March 16th than probably ever before. And (laughs) nurses are, we are incredibly flexible. We have a very supportive uh, state organization, the Rhode Island Certified School Nurse Teachers. Uh, What I did is I continued on with my health teaching remotely making, uh, you know, videos and platforms and so on. And then I also decided that a way to continue outreach to families that I'm used to seeing all of the time or the children that I'm used to seeing, I partnered with my school social worker, and together we called every single family in our school and talked with the children and talked with the families. And from that, they knew that there was... uh, an alternate person to the classroom teacher because the classroom teacher was already so inundated with what they were doing that we were also a resource that they could that they could mm-hmm. contact but being in a small school we already have those relationships as baseline sure and we also have continuing to make sure that the children with acute illnesses, chronic illnesses, are getting to the doctor, accessing the things that they can. If mom or dad have lost their job and their health Mm -hmm. insurance, we could be that liaison making sure that that's happening. So it really is remarkable what the school nurse can still do while distance learning. I want to stick with what Amy just said about health insurance because it's such a huge issue. So according to a study by the Economic Policy Institute, an estimated, get this, 12 million people, including their spouses and children and dependents, have lost their employer-based health insurance since the start of the pandemic. It's really crazy how multi-layered the impact of this pandemic is. And also the number of people who have now in turn had to go on public forms of health insurance, either like Mm -hmm. Medicare or Medicaid. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I think, you know, we've talked about in this series that school is so much more than just education. You know, we've touched on how it's socialization, how it's emotional, but, you know, also for a lot of kids, it's the place where they get their meals. And also, you know, to, to her point, it's, it's there for some basic forms of health care that now being out of school, not having a school nurse and losing your, your health insurance, you know, are putting, again, the most vulnerable kids at even more risk. You know, and in another aspect, and we've covered it a little bit on, on Fast Company, that, you know, it's, it's, it's tied into this bigger issue and in this, this part of the pandemic. 
is that parents are putting off things, you know, whether or not they've, they've lost their health insurance or they're just afraid because of, you know, going into a medical facility during a pandemic, but parents are putting off things like routine checkups and vaccinations. And that just has a snowball effect for when schools do reopen. If, you know, for example, kids have not been up to date on their, on their vaccinations. We, you know, one, one expert we talked to said we could be trading one health crisis for another. So it's, it's really a a scary situation. And, you know, going back to Amy for, for her and for other school nurses, what is, is their role in regards to, to COVID itself and kind of as schools reopen either in person or with, with like hybrid models? Well, I think, you know, unfortunately, it really depends on the state and it depends on what sort of resources they have for school nurses and also, you know, how their health department is set up. So in Amy's case, she works directly with Rhode Island's Department of Health to identify cases as they come up. And I think it's going to involve a lot of what she already mentioned. It's, you know, calling parents, checking to see that everyone is okay. Where is everyone at mentally and physically? What are the economic concerns that families are dealing with? And is there any way for the school to step in or alternatively, you know, the state if, if need be? And on top of that, I think School nurses, and one of the most important components of school nurses right now during the pandemic is that, you know, they're the ones that are really on the ground. They're the ones that have relationships with students. They're the ones that have relationships with families. And ultimately, they're the ones who are going to have to interface with kids who get sick at school and figuring out what to do with them next. Yeah, so so thinking of that and the the risk factors in in school, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the idea of a tipping point, you know, which, which you've covered in your reporting, according to, to the epidemiologist that you talked to, what is the, the kind of the point in which in-person schooling becomes kind of untenable and schools have to revert back to virtual learning? Well, this is sort of a funny thing. Different public health experts and different state officials have different ideas on what that number should be. So in Dark's case, the governor of Rhode Island has said that the tipping point is 100 cases per 100,000 residents. But New York has different guidelines. And I guess further confusing this is that, you know, the CDC hasn't weighed in. The CDC just says, you know, when (laughs) when cases, you know, essentially become too many, then you should consider closing schools back down. But it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, give a specific number on what what that looks like, what too many cases really is. Yeah. I think I think that's been the most difficult part of this issue of of reopening schools or doing remote learning is that it's really left to individual states and then from there even individual school districts to kind of make up their own metrics and their own numbers and their own what are they they safe with and that there hasn't been a nationwide this is what is acceptable you know and that's so confusing because we're you know none of us and school administrators and even school nurses like no, no none of these people were disease experts you know and we're kind of all being thrown into this this realm where we have to figure out like, okay, what's the, what's the risk and and how many cases is too many cases and is it community spread? Is it number of hospital beds? Is it like, what is the, the factor? And that lack of consistency can make it really confusing for everybody involved, for parents, for teachers, for administrators, for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, and you know, it's it's a funny thing because I, you kind of have to hold these two opposing ideas in your head at once, right? So the, on the one hand, you kind of do need a, a national strategy. You do need sort of the CDC to, to be specific about what the plan is for communities. On the other hand, 
you also need to, to work with communities individually, you know, to a certain extent, communities do need to determine for themselves what is the best course of action because they have specific needs, they have specific circumstances, they have specific community spread. So you need both, right? It can't just be, or at least that's what I've heard from a lot of health experts is that it can't just be states on their own, communities on their own, often driven by politics. It needs to be driven by the science, driven by the data, and it has to have both a national and local strategy. Yeah. And it kind of, I mean, it goes a little bit hand in glove with that there's no national strategy for reopening or for what's safe to reopen. You know, like some places, like the different phases included different things, like a phase two in one state might include in-person dining, but that wasn't included until phase four in another state. And so if those, those factors you know, are not consistent. And then your school districts are different and your school districts have smaller class sizes or bigger class sizes. Trying to put all of those disparate pieces of the puzzle together and figure out, you know, what's the risk within school, but then what's the risk within in the community as well. It's just, it's been kind of mind boggling. Completely. And, you know, nothing is cut and dry. You know, with Amy Dark, the nurse that I spoke with, you know, she described testing numbers and these tipping point numbers, you know, any kind of testing is only going to give you the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's an indicator of the possible scope of the issue. And, and part of the role of school nurses is looking at the sort of day-to-day activity. What are they seeing? What symptoms are they seeing? How are they seeing faculty? Those are the, those are the kind of signals that are ultimately going to dictate how a school reacts and, and makes choices. And also what makes dealing with COVID really difficult. Part of what made COVID so pervasive to begin with was the number of asymptomatic cases or slightly, you know, slightly symptomatic people. You know, it's really hard to know when someone is sick, especially, you know, when we have this culture of either going to work sick or sending your kid to school with a runny nose. You know what I mean? So I think we also, you know, there's a certain sort of relearning we have to do that makes this a complicated process. If you have been following the CDC symptom list, it has increased to truly a dizzying array of which, and as we discussed earlier in our conversation, the amount of responsibilities that are on a school nurse on a daily basis, maintaining treatments, medication administration, and all of vaccine verification, um, you know, and the lumps and bumps of the playground, all of those things dovetailed onto trying to differentiate If a symptom raises to the point of asking the family to have the child tested and remembering, too, that registered nurses are not allowed to diagnose, we can only assess and refer. Mm. So we are not saying this is an absolute, but how many children do we send home in a day with concern for? Yeah, that sounds incredibly tricky because kids in school, they get sick all the time. And often it's, you know, something like a runny nose or a scratchy throat. And it's really nothing. It's a a mild cold. But during a pandemic, how do you know that a scratchy throat is nothing? And making that call seems impossible and a real burden to put on on school nurses. But right now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to take a deeper look at what epidemiologists are saying we need to do to keep schools open and keep people safe. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. 
Joining us now to discuss how schools can successfully reopen and stay open is Dr. Preeti Milani, Chief Health Officer and Professor of Medicine at the University of Michigan. Dr. Milani, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So let, let's take it back to March when you know, the U.S. You know, finally kind of realized that coronavirus was here and shut down. At that point, what should have been done at a state level and a national level, level to prioritize the reopenings of schools for the fall and, and what to avoid kind of what we've seen happening playing out over the summer and even now into September and October in some places, this kind of last minute effort? You know, I think there are a couple of things just to begin is one is that this is hard and things are changing. And when I think back to March, it really feels yeah, yeah, like a lifetime ago. Uh, But as you know, within a matter of days, really every school, college, K through 12, as well as higher education made this very rapid and I I, uh, made a very rapid and unplanned pivot to remote learning. And at that moment, the country was in turmoil. The healthcare systems were overwhelmed, including in, uh, in our state, in Michigan, uh, and in Ann Arbor for that matter. And at that moment, it was really about survival. And, and I, I mean that literally and figuratively. Health and well-being more broadly had to sort of be put aside. Uh, we think about remote learning and all the issues that come with that. Uh, isolation and learning issues and just barriers. And then as you know, things started to settle down. And while it settled down in my state of Michigan, I'd say in sort of late April, early May, and as the school year wound up, people started thinking about the fall. And you know, to be honest, it's, it's, not, a, uh, it's not something that's simple. And it's not just one thing. It's not just let's test everyone or let's wear masks, although masks are super important and essential to getting back to things. But you know, when you think about schools more broadly in the learning environment, just getting to a place that you could spread people out enough is difficult. And that you could have done all the planning you wanted in the spring, and it may not have changed things because in the end, it really had to do with the virus being under control in the country. And as we saw all summer long, there are parts of the country where it was completely out of control, particularly in Florida and Arizona and California. Uh, Texas. And, you know, here we are. And somehow we got to Labor Day. And that's a traditional start time for a lot of schools, uh, although that varies. And what I've seen is some schools have said, okay, we're going to do this in a hybrid fashion where, you know, kids are here one day, they're not here another, or they're here in the morning and not in the afternoon. And, you know, the young kids are here, the older kids are remote. It's, It's not one way. And there are other places where the pandemic just looks different. And these are especially places that are a little less populated. They're away from the, the, the uh, urban centers. And it is a bit like business like usual there. And, and it just has to do with the fact that those places are a little bit isolated and they've been able to maintain uh, day-to-day life without some of these changes. But where I am in Ann Arbor, uh, Ann Arbor Public Schools are, are uh, remote for the time being. And I'm not sure exactly how they're going to get back to face-to-face learning. And I think one of the difficulties is that there's so much effort required in the logistics. And what I've heard from educators, smart educators, is that if all that effort goes into delivering really robust remote curriculum, you can knock it out of the park. And I think some places have just made that decision and said, you know what? It's not ideal. Let's do our best to support 
the individuals we can support, and it might be with technology, it might be with virtual tutoring, uh, it might be finding ways to get people face-to-face -face who need it in small settings, but to actually transform a whole system that's built around density and togetherness is impossible in the kind of timeline that we're talking about. What are the, you, you touched on a little bit, like it, it looks different in different areas. What, you know, from a, from a disease, infectious disease expert standpoint and community and what we know about how the disease is spread, what are those factors that make in-person education possible versus the factors that make it impossible? Like, obviously you, t you touched on, you know, if, if the place is remote, obviously classroom size, we know, um, I think community spread you mentioned. I think some of it is also how comfortable the faculty and community are. You know, one of the things that we don't talk about is that teachers and staff are also parents. And some of them have a situation where they're also trying to help their own children. They're trying to help their own children get on Zoom while they're teaching class. And I think the childcare situation has been really difficult. So that's, that's one more consideration to think about. Um, the density in a lot of schools is already pretty high. And you, you, you sort of hear it places. I, and unfortunately, I, I think, uh, again, my perspective is in Ann Arbor as a parent. Um, Huron High School, where my son uh, went to school, it's pretty busy as you pass classes. And that even if you came up with ways to redo the hallway, I, I don't see a way to really get the numbers down where you can have some sort of distance. Even six feet is not realistic in most of those settings, but can you do four feet with masks? And I think even getting to that is a little bit difficult. Um, I don't have the answer, except that you do need community spread to be under control and you need the community to feel good about this. We can do a lot of things to make the environment safe, but in the end, we also need to make people feel safe and we need to answer the questions they have. And I think, again, that's difficult because places do this differently. I haven't seen uh, one standard way that people are doing this and but yet people are doing this <laughs> they're doing something that feels impossible and what i would love to see is some focus on some of the successes and some of the unique ways to do it i've i've seen reports of people putting up tents in order to allow for some of the co-curricular activities to continue even if the traditional core education elements are remote but still having that sense of community. Well, I definitely want to go back to some of those positive cases at some point, but the first thing I want to talk to you about is community spread because there has just not been a real hard figure, not a national figure for what, like, what is the rate of infection that is too much to start congregating in schools again, even if you're going back on like a, you know, um, like an A schedule, B schedule model where kids, like half as many kids come in as normally would. But the numbers for infection rate, just to your point about everyone's handling it a little bit differently, those numbers are really all over the map. And I'm curious what you think about that and if there should be sort of a certain threshold. Yeah, so this is a great question, Ruth. And it's difficult to sort of set one threshold. And, and again, look, thinking about higher education, this question's come up a lot. And so when you think about the Big Ten, which is the place I live with the University of Michigan and, and our peer institutions, uh, there's, there's not one set way to do this. And I want to highlight that returning to face-to-face -face education is not a zero-risk proposition, but it also brings benefits. And I think that is a piece that we don't always talk about. In terms of thresholds to think about pivoting or taking a pause, there's not one particular number, but the kind of things that 
people would look at, and they would do this in conjunction with local public health authorities and likely the state, uh, would be things like percentage positive of, of tests. Uh, public health capacity is a big one too. And, and that doesn't just mean how many hospital beds you have, because really that's not what, where we want to ever be again. And when we think back to March, that's where we were. We were the hospitals were, were beyond capacity and we were thinking of very non-traditional ways to try to take care of patients. Uh, what I'm thinking of is the ability to mitigate spread. So can I identify the cases in a timely manner? Can I do the contact tracings? Can I do isolation and quarantine? And again, when people live in the community, it's a different issue than if they're living on a college campus where you need quarantine facilities. You know, again, K through 12 kids are gonna presumably be living with adults. And now that also brings interesting issues because you may have vulnerable older adults living with you or even younger people and intergenerational families. You can also have crowded conditions in some settings for, for some students. But it's things like what's happening over time? What's going on? And are there, are there a number of outbreaks at once? Is there spread within a school? where you might have to take a pause at one particular school, but that may be not affect another school. And spread tends to happen in social settings, not in the school settings. And again, that's difficult to explain sometimes because there's an understandable fear for people like to send their kids back and to be in a setting where they're very close to other people. But what I worry about are kids getting together outside, particularly older kids who decide to have a party and the social distancing goes away and, or they're all like packed into a car or into someone's basement. So I think you really need their whole life to, to be around mitigation, yet you need to find ways for them to gather safely. So it's not one particular metric, it's, it's several things. It's percentage positives of tests, it's having adequate testing, it's having adequate public health capacity to do the contact tracing, on a college campus, you'd think about things like quarantine facilities. And you may get to the point in some schools where there's so many people who are either quarantined or sick that there's nobody in class or that the staff end up not being able to teach in person. And I think some of this happened in the Southern states, which for the most part went back to face-to-face -to -face education. And you know, to be honest, I haven't seen much of what's happened and whether the schools have contributed to local outbreaks or is it like other things where it's the social setting that matters i think that's really interesting because i think you know like you say parents are really concerned about sending their kids back to school and and the kids getting sick at school but but what you're saying is that that's an environment that you know we're we're mandating masks we're mandating social distancing we're we're putting more parameters in place and so actually children in school are more safe than than I suppose like out in their community. And is it, it's the social settings. It, is it just because people let their guard down and don't, you know, adhere to social distancing and mask wearing, or what is it about the, the community risk that's higher than the school risk? So it's a great question, Kate. You know, one of, I, I would say one of the big things that we have learned since the spring is the importance of masks and the importance of asymptomatic spread. And this is kind of gets at your point is we certainly can't have people coming to school who are sick. And you know, for years and years, everyone just went to school no matter what. And 
you know, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of coming to work sick. I'm certainly guilty of sending my kids to school sick because the idea that you would miss school, like, unless you're really sick. And kids have like, like runny yeah. noses for six months out of the year, you know? Yeah. That's, that's, that's correct. Um, so what's happened is now we sort of take an approach where it's like, okay, we can assume that we don't have people that are sick or certainly not obviously sick. And you're, you are putting them into a, a more controlled environment where the mitigation measures are there. And there's been good examples of this. And I will point to healthcare as a place where we are in close quarters and we do share spaces. I mean, not everyone's got their own place to work. And I'm talking to today from the University of Michigan Health System. And um, I feel very comfortable here. I've gotten to where I'm comfortable interacting with patients. Um, I wear a mask. You know, they wear masks other than when I might look in their mouth. Uh, but we, we have not seen spread in the healthcare setting. And that's an important point. Uh, early on where we just didn't understand how this virus was spread, uh, we weren't masking back in March universally. And there was spread. And unfortunately, some people got very sick. Uh, there have been other cases too. There was this great case of a hairdresser in Missouri. I'm not sure if you heard about this, but so there's a hairdresser who was symptomatic with coronavirus infection and cut the hair of numerous clients over the course of several days. And then they tested all these people and there was no spread. Everyone had a mask on. There, ha there has been growing evidence to really support that. And I believe that the school setting is, we're gonna find this as well. Now, does that mean it's easy to send your kids to school and feel good about it? No, it doesn't. Because it's scary as a parent, the, the most precious thing in your life to send them somewhere where you're worried about coronavirus. But you know, I will get back to the fact that there are other risks to the, for these kids and their academic risks, their emotional well-being risks. There are um, risks around equity. I mean, learning remotely is not possible for every, every person. So the social piece is important. And again, I think with little kids, you tend to have a little more oversight. And again, I think it's, it's just different. The world is different than when I grew up where I would probably like wander for hours and hours and I, I knew when to come home at the end of the day, especially in the summertime. But, but these days, I think people do know where their kids are. And if they are playing, they're doing it outside in small groups. But I worry about older kids because it's natural to want to get together and I do think the guard goes down. And I think especially if this is a group of people that you, you feel trust in, that you're close with, uh, it just takes one person, especially in a close setting, indoors to spread to a lot of people. And we've seen this. It sounds like layering is, is the key here, right? It's like multiple strategies at once. I'm really curious, you were, you were mentioning earlier that... Um, that there was like there were some schools that were giving you hope that you were you were seeing some models that were really working and i'm curious like what approach has been really uh interesting to you yeah you know it's it's interesting is uh there's not one way to get back and i think that is difficult there's been a lot of focus on testing and there is a tendency to believe that if you just test everyone all the time you can get back safely and i i do think that could work in a small setting and uh, boarding schools have done this. Uh, a lot of the smaller liberal arts schools where everyone lives on campus and you might only have 1,500 people or 2,000 people and you just say, we're just gonna test everyone every week. And again, those, are, those tend to be communities that are a little bit closed. They're kind of either out in the woods or out, you know, they're out somewhere where you don't have a lot of other people interacting. That's pretty different than the University of Michigan 
We've done something called surveillance testing, where we're taking a subset of each of the population and testing to look for activity and if it's increasing. We're obviously focusing on testing anyone with symptoms. We also tested everyone into the residence halls to try to make sure that people who were infected weren't coming into a setting where spread could happen more easily. So there are differences around testing and, and we're watching and seeing how it works at big places that are testing everyone, including University of Illinois and Indiana University. But I will say um, within my state, they, there are two examples. University of Michigan decided they were gonna have some sort of in-person semester for those students who wanna be here. Some chose to be fully remote. And again, majority of classes are not in person. It's about a quarter. And again, it depends on the type of class and what your curriculum is. Michigan State in East Lansing, about an hour from here, is fully remote, except for you know very few things that can't be done in person. And they're actually having a lot of spread there. And so even though they're a campus that didn't bring students back to campus, the students are there anyway. And this has to do with the fact that people have leases and that they don't wanna necessarily be home. And even if they're living remotely, they wanna do it with their friends. And this is something that a lot of large public universities have seen who've limited the number of on campus. So it's kind of interesting to sort of see the successes in, and the limitations of these different approaches. For K through 12, some of the schools that are smaller are set up to, to do this better. And it just has to do with the fact that you can have a little more control. I also think remote learning and remote teaching is not just getting on Zoom and doing your usual thing. So many schools and colleges have put a lot of resources into to teaching faculty how to teach remotely. And I think that's also an important takeaway. And frankly, some of that may be here to stay. That's another question I had for you. Like how much of this is here to stay? Do you think that the pandemic is going to fundamentally change school going forward? Are we going to think differently about how we prepare for, you know, I would say flu season, but now I think it's just like illness season. Um, <laughs> or do we think differently about remote learning now? Because, you know, in some cases, schools have really developed really interesting protocols. Yeah, this is this is great. And I, I think I could ask you the same thing about remote work because you're probably working a little bit differently, maybe, maybe not, uh, than, than the way you worked back in March. Uh, I do think some things are gonna be different. I, I hope we can get back to the community aspect that schools and college and that that brings to you because that is something that is different remotely. Uh, I. I think it opens up the opportunity to bring in speakers that you normally wouldn't be able to bring in because you can just pop them up on the screen and interact with them. Um, we did this so quickly and so fully that if, if we had talked about this two years ago and said, you know what, let's just do everything on a computer, people would have thought that was a ridiculous idea. But the truth is some of there's some efficiency to it. And so what I expect to continue is that at least at the college level, the very large introductory lecture classes will, will likely stay remote because there's probably not a lot of reason to be in person for most people. And frankly, people tend to not even pay attention that well. And for the instructor too, it might just be better to give that lecture from your home. Um, it might end up being better and better received and more interactive, ironically. 
Um, I do think smaller groups discussions and uh, things that need to be done in person like labs and uh, artwork, studios, uh, performance, you know, those are obviously going to have to continue and there'll be some, some adaptations to that. But I wonder how our society is going to be changed by this because clearly, and, and I think our young kids who are currently in elementary school and middle school, they're going to be changed forever by this. As to exactly how they're going to be changed, these are, this is a, a best guess. I, I hope that some of it will be positive, that they'll be resilient and flexible, that they'll appreciate human interaction and maybe not want to be on a screen all the time. And that when we are together, we really value that. And, and we're, we're more present than we have been. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I hope you're right. You know, we've been, we've been covering a lot the, you know, how this is, this situation is really shedding a light on the opportunity gap and the inequalities in the public school system and giving us an opportunity to change those things. And I think you're right that it's also giving us an opportunity to, to think more innovatively about what school can mean. Um, I hope that we do think about the inequities and what can be done creatively and that the traditional summer school, as I remember summer school, you know, maybe that's not the way to go about it, but maybe it is bringing school buses in uh, with mobile hotspots and, and bringing education to the spaces where it really is needed and doing it in a way that's more effective. And I think in some ways, there's so many rules about school, not just for students, but for faculty and how you teach and what you have to teach. Hopefully some of this, this gives freedom to do what is needed for that particular community. Yeah, I hope so. I hope we emerge from this in a better place than when we started. <laughs> I'll tell you, <laughs> I, I mean, got to hope because this is not, it's not a good situation to be in. And I really do feel for the kids. Really. Totally. And it's scary too, that like a lot of the schools that are doing some of the innovative things that you're talking about, you know, we talked about how that there's a Montessori school up by me that is doing outdoor classes and that's like, and they're going to do it all through winter. And that's amazing on the one hand, but it's also the kind of thing that a small, well-funded school can do yep. and is much harder for the bigger publicly funded schools. But can the bigger publicly funded school take some element of that? And even if it's once a week, doing the winter survival and doing, you know, which is something that, that the kids in Ann Arbor do, although it's yeah, forest like, school, right. Where, where they have yeah. there's forest <laughs> yeah, school where like they're a, outside all the time. Yeah. 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 And like uh, mountain school and things, but, but can you do it in a way, you know, can you find like a farmhouse? Can you find a, a barn that you can keep open? I, I think that this does call for creativity in a way that, that has never been asked for. You know, it calls for creativity in a new way. And I hope that our students, our kids learn creativity because that's in the end, probably much more important than anything they're gonna learn from one particular book. Yeah, it's been amazing to see how adaptable they are to this too, yeah. That's right, they are adaptable. All right, thank you so much. Thank you, nice to meet you guys. She had so many interesting things to say that are making me, one, feel better about the decision to send my my four-year-old to preschool, but two, just about 
the ways that we're thinking about the risks and, and thinking about them differently, you know, like what she said about it's not so much in the classroom as in the hallways between the classrooms. It's not so much in the school as it is out in the community and thinking about like the way the, the ways that we're viewing risks and, and, you know, to her point, which we which you explored in your article too, like the other elements that we're not considering, like the social emotional elements and how important those are. Totally. I also thought that example she gave of how two schools that are both doing like primarily remote learning can have wildly different outcomes in terms of community spread, I think is so interesting. And really, like, it it seems to all come back to, and I think a lot of health experts have said this, you know, it's just a layered approach. You have to have multiple ways of trying to combat spread, right? Whether that's testing, mask wearing, you know, doing some classes outside, thinking more deeply about remote learning, Mm -hmm. whatever that is. Yeah. And that it's not a kind of, you know, as she said, like a zero sum, it's not all or nothing. It's not have in-person classes or have total remote or, you know, only, only go to school, but not, you know, it's just all of these different elements. And I think it's, as we keep learning more and more about it and like to her point of, you know, we weren't wearing masks in, in March and like how of our, our knowledge of the disease and knowledge of spread is, is evolving and changing and then simultaneously how it's helping us reimagine school and what school means. I have a lot of hope for that. And I'm, it's actually kind of an exciting time, I think for schools, like schools that are really taking remote learning head on and thinking about it in innovative ways and really trying to do remote learning first, as opposed to trying to retrofit school to be online. I think that stuff is so interesting and could really be huge, especially from an access perspective, which was like the last thing that she talked about. Yeah. And I mean, and it also, you know, like what we've been covering in this series so much is how much this situation has shed a light on opportunity gap and inequalities in, in the school system. And one of those biggest factors is class size. And that's also one of the biggest factors for disease spread. So if nothing else comes out of this other than class sizes get smaller, I think that in itself is a win. Yes, absolutely. If we can just like make the case for funding more teachers to reduce class sizes, I think that would be huge. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your reporting on this issue. It's been so fascinating. Thanks, Kate. So this is our last episode in our Reinventing Education mini-series. I want to thank you so much for coming along with me on this new experiment for the show. And I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to my Fast Company colleagues and hearing from parents, teachers, and experts facing this crisis. I know that I've learned a lot and I've gained some new perspectives, and I hope you have too. In the coming weeks, we'll have a listener survey for you to tell us what you think of this new format and what you'd like to hear more of in the coming months. And that's it for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Secrets of the Most Productive People wherever you listen. And we want to hear from you. Are you a working parent, a teacher, a child care provider? Let us know how you've been handling education in the pandemic by leaving us a voicemail at 833-582-FAST. That's 833-582-3278. Or you can tweet us with the hashtag FCMostProductive or send us an email at mostproductive at fastcompany.com. This episode is part of our Reinventing Education series. You can find all the articles from the series on fastcompany.com, including Ruth Reader's reporting on this topic. If you liked this episode, please let us know. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Joshua Christensen.